Davos, the WEF conspiracy. The World Economic Forum was back in action this week in Davos for the first time since 2020 for its annual winter meeting with the world's elites. The event began on Monday. It's coming to a close today. Russell Brand described it as the Coachella of corporatocracy and the Glastonbury of globalism. And here's why. Davos this week hosted 52 heads of state and nearly 600 CEOs for this week-long event, including CEOs of Amazon, BlackRock, JP Morgan, Pfizer, Moderna, all gathering alongside the, pres the president, the European Commission, the IMF's managing director, the secretary general for NATO, the chiefs of the FBI, the MI6, the publisher of the New York Times, and of course, the event's infamous host, founder and chairman, Klaus Schwab. Plus, of course, the 5,000 soldiers deployed for their protection, or perhaps to ensure what goes on in Davos stays in Davos. Hi, my name is Dan Aston Gregory. This is the Elevate podcast. In tonight's episode, I'm exploring whether this story around Davos and the World Economic Forum is merely conspiracy or something a little more sinister. Please let me know in the comments your thoughts, your reflections on the World Economic Forum, Davos, the Great Reset. Tell us what you think in the comments. In this episode, I'm going to explore what power the WEF really does have and also look at some of the ideas around the conspiracy theories that have been pondered and put forth inside the mainstream media this week as these elites have gathered. Now, uh, bringing things back home to the UK, Rishi Sunak, our current prime minister, I say current, it could all change tomorrow, who knows how many have we had in the last few years, um, but Rishi did, decided not to attend this year, even though the prime minister, of course, would have been in uh, plenty of uh, good company amongst the tech entrepreneurs and the Wall Street bankers who always attend Davos in serious numbers. His, uh, you know, his 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 allegiances that we know uh, uh, work alongside him anyway. Um, and according to a Guardian columnist, not that that's any grain of truth <laughs> or indicator of truth, it's a matter of frustration, according to this uh, particular economist, that the World Economic Forum's agenda. Um, is not being followed by the UK government and that the UK government is not using Davos to sketch out its global agenda. And I say, really, uh, you know, Sunak doesn't really need to go to show the indicators that he's already following the uh, the course laid out by uh, the technocrats that are gathering this week. Um, but both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, uh, thought that mingling with the world's global elite whilst Britain is gripped with the cost of living crisis may appear to be bad PR. However, that did not stop Labour Party leader Keir Starmer and the shadow uh, Chancellor Rachel Reeves, who have both taken the opportunity to demonstrate just how corporate friendly the Labour Party has become, which I'm sure just will send shivers down the left thinking about how <laughs> what that represents. But perhaps Starmer and co are hoping that the inner workings of the globalist machine will somehow eventually work in their favor and time will tell. But we're not here to talk about politics tonight, or maybe we are, because the question that we ask around the power that the WF ultimately has over our sovereign nations is an important component to get our heads around. And I'll talk more about that as we go on. 
Now, the theme for this year's Davos Convention is cooperation in a fragmented world. Well, we can certainly see that the world is becoming greater fragmented due to all of the uh, manipulation and propaganda that we've been witness witnessing over the last couple of years. Um, but the WEF say that they will look at how we can tackle the numerous and interlinked challenges that the world is facing. Certainly are interlinked. And it's certainly interesting to see how many of these global bodies are at the core of that interconnection. Uh, however, that's a story for another day. You know, maybe leaning into the conspiracy side there, but uh, it is important to recognize the global actors that seemingly come to the rescue, if you will, um, uh, every, every turn and every crisis. And the idea, of course, is that the World Economic Forum will pioneer solutions through public-private cooperation. What exactly that means is something else will unfold as we go through today. Now, cooperation in a fragmented world. Cooperation with whom exactly? Building trust with whom? This idea of trust was a subject that's brought up this week. Uh, it's not exactly cooperation with us, Joe Public, I think. Cooperation amongst corporations amongst corporations. Uh, mapping centralized and globalized interests between the, aristoc uh, the, the aristocracy, the elite, the state, and the corporations is seemingly the order of the day, given the invite list and the level of protection that's been put in place. And you can see how independent journalism has been thwarted in Davos if you look around uh, some of the clips that have been circulating on social media. So there's certainly things that are happening that they don't want us to see. Now, the main event is, of course, broadcast live. You can watch it. You know, they say, look, we're open and transparent. We'll touch on that again later on as we go through this, because there's plenty, I can tell you, that is not open and transparent that goes on in Davos. And of course, anyone that's in business that has been to any form of conference will know that the talks are one thing, but it's the deals that have done around the, 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 the drinks in the evening and the bars and the, uh, the things that happen outside the event room where all the action happens. And that, that is certainly no different at Davos. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. Now, Despite the obvious or seemingly to me obvious implications of the wealthiest and most powerful people gathering together in a heavily guarded remote location, the mainstream media have been spouting about how conspiracy theories have begun to thrive online as the elites arrived in Davos on Monday. Now, you might um, say, Okay, well, given my tone in this broadcast, you know, there is a tone to what I'm saying here because there's an irony to all of this. And I will try and be as balanced as possible within this. But the point is, how can you even begin to ponder that this that, that there is there is no conspiracy when <laughs> the world's most elite come together in forums like this? However, to quote CBS News, and this is a direct quote. The annual event in the Swiss ski resort town of Davos, which opens on Monday, has increasingly become the target of bizarre <laughs> claims from a growing chorus of commentators who believe the forum involves a group of elites manipulating global events for their own benefit. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, 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 openly, it's openly witnessable uh, that is what's happening. Experts say what was once a conspiracy theory found on the Internet's underbelly has now hit the mainstream. It goes on to say that hundreds of public sessions are planned, but the four-day conference is also known for its secretive backroom meetings and deal-making by business leaders. This gap between what's shown to the public and what happens behind closed doors makes 
uh, the meeting a flashpoint for misinformation. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear. I mean, there's so much I could say, but that just just those statements. And as I was saying, you know, any of you who have been to business conferences know that the latter is true. It's the deals that are struck outside of the room, the connections that are made that really have where the influence and power is. And that is the piece that is not visible to the public. But even the things that are visible to the public are very telling because there really is no need to resort to, as they describe, bizarre conspiracy theories to posit the fact that the World Economic Forum's agenda is much more likely to be tailored to suit the interests of its funders, its founders, its board members, the world's ultra wealthy and the corporate elites, rather than improving the state of the world, as the organization claims, it often results in uh, improving its own bank balance. And, you know, I'm going to talk about the role of the pandemic and how this showed up in a minute. But if you want evidence at the self-serving nature of these elites, the top 1% have captured nearly twice as much new wealth as the rest of the entire world. <laughs> nearly twice as much wealth than all of the entire world combined, <laughs> according to Oxfam's annual inequality report, which was released last Sunday. Their, so their fortune soared by 26 trillion during the, uh, the the pandemic period, the period of the COVID chapter. So to, to cite this as conspiracy is quite frankly alarming that the mainstream media would say that. But we know the mainstream media is part of the overall machine. The New York Times is there. CBS is there. CNBC is there. You know, they're entwined. And yeah, how can a media outlet report factually and independently journalistically on an event where they're invited as a partner. Come on, come on. Common sense corner here. It's still alive. Um, now, given all the secret meetings at Davos, it wouldn't be unreasonable to suggest that the WEF is secretly trying to use its global political influence to pursue a political policy agenda. However, the reality is it's been as an organization, doing this quite openly for many, many years. The organization's existed for over 50 years. And most of the agenda, as they nonchalantly describe it, they, they don't even shy away from the term agenda. You know, they ran an event uh, called, which was all about grand narratives recently, you know, shaping the narrative, shaping the agenda. They're not even, they don't even hide from it. You know, it's, it's, there is no conspiracy. So even though these secretive meetings do indeed occur at Davos, Quite frankly, they are very open about their plans. You know, there is really no secret agenda. Most of it's laid out in the open. You know, so the idea that this is a conspiracy, which is the subject of this report, is futile in my view, because the corporate takeover of the global agenda, which has been aided and abetted by the WEF, became particularly apparent to, to so many of us during the COVID Chapter, you know, so many people I recall back looking to uh, the early videos that we put out on the pandemic podcast and hello to all of all of those of you who have followed the story uh, and the pandemic podcast ever since I'm wearing the pandemic podcast t shirt today and if you can see that as a, as a throwback, uh, although that whole story is not over by any stretch. But so many people commented, this is the great reset. This is the great reset. And, and I think that initial connection with the WF and the great reset was why some of the mainstream media outlets started to go down this idea that this is a conspiracy. But, you know, we can zoom out now that these 
public, private and corporate centered coalitions, all with ties to the World Economic Forum beyond the reach of democratic accountability, all played a crucial role, not only in promoting a vaccine centric and profit driven response to the pandemic, they also help oversee the vaccine rollout. But if you actually zoom out further, you can see they're involved in all of the pandemic preparation planning. So they've got their hand in everything, you know, everything from the big tech censorship to the way that this is unfolded. The WEF and its cronies have their hand in everything. And if you can't see that by now, I'm sorry. Like if you're watching this as, an, <laughs> as a new viewer and you're like, what's this guy on about? I'm sorry, there is no hope. <laughs> I'm sorry, there simply is no hope. <laughs> but in simple terms, and I jest, you know, please do watch on. You know, there is no judgment here. We're all on the same team. You know, we're all we're all here trying to do our best for humanity in some way. I think some of us are at least anyway. But in other words, the pandemic brought the consequences of the World Economic Forum's decades long globalist push into clear sight. So that is no conspiracy. You know, their agenda became very, very clear and, and to a lot of people very quickly because the interconnections, as they call it, were very, very visible. And as I mentioned, they were very happy to profit from the crisis, too. So clearly, question marks are raised. But what's more troubling, if the pandemic chapter itself wasn't enough, it's now that the World Economic Forum is promoting the same top down centralized, corporate-driven approach to a wide range of other domains, whether it's the energy crisis, the food crisis, the, uh, the, the healthcare challenges, the global surveillance policies, they're all stemming from the same centralized source with equally dramatic and either intended or unintended consequences. Because, you know, the last two years was a, was a classic example, whether things were done innocently or not, it was so myopic that the, the second order consequences of policy decisions were clearly not taken into account because we're feeling the hard effect of that now. And we can debate till the cows come home whether it was deliberate or an unintended consequence. But the reality is those consequences are clear to see. And it's predictable. And I've, I, I come up with this theory now that where human beings try to uh, intervene in natural processes or ex with excess intervention, it's always going to end up with worse side effects than the actual original in, uh, in, in, um, intervention. So all of the stuff that's happening around climate now, the, the net zero agenda, which is, again, widely linked to the WF. And I always feel like whenever I talk about climate, because it's so intense, that discussion, I have to kind of underscore the fact that I love our planet and I really do care about the environment and I want to live and I want my boy to grow up in a world where he has clean air, clean water, all these things. But I don't want him to live up in a world, <laughs> grow up in a world of tyranny, which is exactly why I do this every single day uh, to try and figure out how we can find a path ahead that is a different path to the one offered by the World Economic Forum. So in my view, it would be wrong to view any of this as a conspiracy since the World Economic Forum has always been very candid about its objectives, that they're not hidden at all. Now, this is simply the inevitable result of a multi-stakeholderist approach, which is, which is a conversation we can explore more in another episode. But it's all about this private-public partner, uh, uh, private partnership, these philanthropy, 
um, and uh, the, the, the voices that belong to these groups having greater influence over global affairs than governments themselves. That's, that's the realistic outcome from this idea of the multi-stakeholder or the stakeholder governance approach where corporations effectively have greater dominance over state than any individual uh, political actor. Yet, the reason why governments often seem so willing to go along with these policies, even in the face of widespread social opposition, and let's face it, the story around uh, the Oxford um, low traffic zones, these 15-minute cities, and the ULES uh, setup in London where there's been great resistance, that the, the politicians aren't paying attention, and they're not paying attention to any of the resistance during the height of the pandemic. Why is this? Well, <laughs> the WF strategy over the years has not just been to influence governments and shift power away from governments, but also to infiltrate governments around the world. Now, that word infiltrate might raise alarm bells for some people. It sounds radical. It sounds radical. How can that be true, Dan? Well, let's unpack it, shall we, and look at the facts. The World Economic Forum has largely achieved a level of infiltration. I'm happy to use that word. Uh, that word through its program known as its Young Global Leaders Initiative, which is aimed at training future global world leaders. Now, this particular initiative was launched in 1992, 30 years ago. At the time, it was called Global Leaders for Tomorrow. And the initiative has spawned many globalist-aligned heads of states, cabinet ministers, and business leaders. You know, it's got its tentacles, and this is a slow burn. This is a long-standing process. It's got its tentacles in the web of how the world operates through politics and business and other stakeholder uh, uh, um, organizations. Let's look at some examples so that I can prove to you this is not merely conjecture. Tony Blair, for instance, who spoke at Davos this week on, guess what, vaccine passports and digital IDs. He's really got the bit between his teeth. You know, good old war criminals. Let's uh, let's give them a podium and let's give them a medal. Says a lot about our society, doesn't it? Where are our values right now? This is a values crisis more than anything, in my view. But he was a participant uh, not only at Davos this week, but he was a participant at the very first Global Leaders of Tomorrow event hosted by the World Economic Forum. In fact, the early intakes was packed with future leaders, including Angela Merkel in Germany, Viktor Orban, Hungary, Nicolas Sarkozy in France, and Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, who's recently stepped down after a tyrannical period uh, in New Zealand. Uh, you know, so these people have been part of the overall infrastructure, the mechanisms of the World Economic Forum since very early stages in their own development. You could say they're being groomed. <laughs> I don't like that word, but groomed for, for future leadership positions. And these, you have to look at the influence that these bodies have. And, you know, the leadership change in the United Kingdom recently, where it switched very quickly to Sunak, I'm, I'm, I'm entirely convinced that the, the machine was, part, you know, regardless of what you think of Liz Truss or Sunak, Sunak is clearly, despite the fact he's not at Davos this week, he's clearly part of the club, you know, and Truss, you know, he, he, he may have had connections, but I think she was taken out. You know, I think this is all, this is all part of the machine. Now that is speculation. I cannot prove it. I cannot prove it, but they're, they're, <laughs> crazier things have happened. Now, in 20, if, if we can go another stage further. I've given you some examples. 
2017, Schwab admitted admitted publicly to having used the Global Leadership Program to penetrate the cabinets of several governments. You know, if you reacted to the word infiltration, how did you react to the word penetrate? Used by Klaus Schwab himself. <laughs> penetrate the cabinets of several governments, adding that as of 2017, more than half of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's cabinet had been members of the Global Leadership Programme. Says it all. It says it all. For those of you who have been looking at Canada and thinking what just happened to what appeared to be one of the most civilised nations in the world, similarly with New Zealand, to be fair, how they both turned incredibly tyrannical in such a short period of time. <laughs> of, the, of the origin story as, as to why that's happened in such a way. Now, more recently, and again, this is all verifiable, in December 2021, the Dutch government published its past correspondence with the representatives of the World Economic Forum, which showed extensive interaction between the World Economic Forum and the Dutch government. Now, as we're going through this, part of your mind might be thinking, what on earth can we do, Dan? And I'll come to that question, although I won't address it uh, in any great length in this particular episode, because, you know, We've only got a certain amount of time today, but it will be. We're going to be looking at this question, this important question over the coming weeks. But certainly one of the first things we can be doing is asking through Freedom of Information Act for governments to be publishing their relationships and interactions with organizations like the WEF and not exclusive to them because there are plenty of others. Uh, but the, the, the WEF is certainly the crown jewels of where this is happening, although you know, many would argue that there's other organizations that's kind of <laughs> fueling the WEF, this complex web of uh, actually only a small number of people, which I'll talk about. But when the Dutch prime minister proposed to drastically cut the nitrogen emissions in line with the World Economic Forum-inspired greenwashing policies. Sorry, that's my label. It sparked a large-scale protest in the Netherlands, and critics drew attention to the fact that not only did Rutt, Mark Rutt, who is the Prime Minister, uh, have close ties with the WF himself, but his Minister of Social Affairs and Employment was also elected to the Global uh, young Leaders Programme in 2008, and his Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister is also a contributor to the World Economic Forum's agenda. So it cuts deep. <laughs> it runs deep. And ultimately, there is no denying that the World Economic Forum wields immense power, which has cemented the rule of this globalist technocratic class to a degree that we've never seen before in history. Now, I'm going to talk about this again in a future episode, but you could describe it as almost neo-feudal, you know, the feudalist system where the, the, the age in the age of empire, where the concentrated, the concentration of power is held between the few and the rest were the workers on the land. You, you could almost argue, uh, as many have or beginning to, that we're entering into this kind of neo-feudal arrangement where the, 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 the powers that be are growing and growing and becoming more and more centralized and concentrated. But that's a story for another day. But ultimately, that's something we need to be paying attention to. Now, people often ask, what is what actually is a globalist? Well, I can tell you something. It's becoming increasingly difficult to actually find a concrete definition because the WEF have gone on a counter, that they are countering the misinformation and conspiracy that people like me are supposedly putting forward by now manipulating the search results on Google. So if you go and type in what is a globalist on Google, well, do it for yourself and go and see the results. You know, the, the whole thing is they're trying to muddy those that use the term globalist to describe the situation. But 
Samuel Huntington, who is credited with inventing the term Davos man to describe the global elites who attend this particular festival of, uh, <laughs> of elites, uh, as saying that this globally have little need, and I quote this, little need for national loyalty, view national boundaries as obstacles, and see national gov governments as residues from the past whose only function is to facilitate the elite's global operations. To me, that sentiment is at the heart of this. It's beyond national governments. And I'll go on to talk more about this as we go through this. But it's important to recognize that this superclass represents a tiny, a tiny group of people with enormous power. And according to researchers, it's just 6,000 to 7,000 people or 0.0001% of the world's population. And yet this tiny group wield more power than any social class in, in the entire global history of humanity, which highlights the real risks of the centralization of power through this non-democratic intergovernmental organizations like the WF. And you could argue, you know, that the uh, of that 6,000, 7,000 people who kind of run the world, the, the, the even smaller group that represent the World Economic Forum is probably at the core, the beating heart alongside other similar organizations. So in its own words, the WEF, its purpose is to redefine the international system as, as constituting a wider multifaceted system of global cooperation, there's that word, cooperation in a fragmented world, in which intergovernmental legal frameworks and institutions are embedded as a core, but not the sole and sometimes not the most crucial component. Now, this at the crux of this statement, you might think, well, global cooperation, legal frameworks, intergovernmental activity, it might sound innocuous, if you hadn't listened to the last 20 minutes or so of what I've just been talking about. But this whole multi-stakeholder, public-private cooperation philosophy neatly encapsulates the basic tenets of globalism, which insulates policy from doc uh, democracy. It transfers decision-making to uh, the super, not, not even the international level, but to the supranational level away from national state governance by placing this self-selected group of unelected, unaccountable stakeholders, stakeholders, mainly corporations, in charge, and it places them in charge of global decisions concerning everything from pandemic responses to energy, food production, media, and public health. Now, for some, that might seem far-fetched, but given everything I've already shared with you, wouldn't it certainly raise your eyebrow at the level of influence that this group has. So that's why when it's when people reduce this to a conspiracy, I can't get my head around it. When you have literally the most influential, powerful people galvanizing together, influencing global policy, indirectly and directly, placing their stooges in, <laughs> in governments, you know, bypassing the democratic process. And if there's someone on this live broadcast that believes that we have a functioning democracy or you have a functioning democracy in your nation, type in the chat, <laughs> give me the evidence. I'd love to see it. You show me that these corporates don't have greater influence on governments than the people and I will eat my hat. <laughs> Good luck to that. Um, now, this whole process, you could argue, is a very fancy, fancy way of describing neo-fascism. Neo 
You know, fascism is, again, is a strong word that, that conjures up dictators and brutality and genocide. And <laughs> some people would argue that's still what it conjures up today. But actually, if you strip it to its core, it's about corporate influence over government. You know, we, we, we need to remove the kind of extreme um, view on it and actually just take it to its core and see that the, the, the extreme views have come as a consequence of that dynamic, which we're now witnessing today, undisputedly so. So the idea with all of this is that global decision making should not be left to governments and nation states, but rather than following the post-war multi, uh, multilateral framework enshrined in the, uh, the United Nations, but instead move away from that and instead involve a whole range of non-government experts and multinational corporations to determine our future. Now, the most symbolic example of the World Economic Forums, and if, you, if, if the infiltration of governments wasn't enough, check this out. The most symbolic example, according to me, uh, in, my, in my humble opinion, is that when the WEF put forth their controversial strategic public-private partnership agreement with the United Nations in 2019, which the UN signed, many viewed that as putting the United Nations at the mercy of the World Economic Forum agenda through its private-public corporation push. Now, this is no conspiracy. This is a document, a strategic partnership agreement between the WEF and the United Nations. Now, the United Nations is supposed to have the interests of the people at its heart. How can it do so when it's got in bed with the corporations and the global elite? I'm not saying that we shouldn't work in cooperation, uh, in collaboration with corporations or indeed <laughs> philanthropists and other high net worth individuals, of course. But when you take the power away from state governance, but also international governance, and place it at the mercy of organizations like the WEF, that should raise real strong alarm bells because that is a giant leap away from democracy and a huge step forward to fascism. So again, we have to get some of these words I've used might cause alarm for some people. So well, it's stretched too far, Dan. Just look at the basic etymology of these words. Look, look at the simple definition of what fascism really means. This is a form, in my view, of neo-fascism, where the global elites and the corporations have more influence than governments themselves, and that should, should raise alarm bells. And uh, if this isn't enough, well, check out the reaction. According to an open letter signed by more than 400 civil society organizations and 40 international networks at the time, uh, they stated that the agreement represents, I quote, a disturbing corporate capture of the United Nations, which moved the world dangerously towards a privatized global governance. So you can call it a conspiracy all you like. You really can. If you think that's going to serve your future, if you think, if you think your future is going to be better off by reducing this all to conspiracy, good luck to you. Good luck to you. But the reality is these organizations have an enormous power over the way the world is being run. And if you've been paying any attention, for the, any shred of attention the last couple of years, you can see that that influence is quite keen on surveilling us, locking down our freedoms, taking away our rights, and ultimately pursuing this neo-feudal state. Now, this letter in opposition in 2019, went on to state that corporate leaders will become a whisper advisor 
to the heads of the UN system, using their private access to advocate market-based profit-making solutions to global problems whilst undermining real solutions embedded in the public interest and transparent democratic procedures. So the alarm bells were raised in 2019, yet this thing still went ahead and look how much progress has been made since in the last three years. You really have to have your eyes closed to not notice the impact that this organization is having around the world right now. So when it gets reduced to conspiracy, basically to get people to close their eyes again, you have to be very afraid of the machine and how it's operating because guess who's influencing the machine? Guess who's influencing the media machine? Guess why the search engine results? When you type in what is the globalist, you don't get an accurate definition. You just get smearing. This is a very concerning time. And by the way, talking of transparency, you would have thought, given all of the preaching, that the World Economic Forum is the epitome of transparency. But it doesn't even engage in the most minimal amount of transparency through any form of public disclosure. And it constantly yet preaches to corporations that we need to follow this ESG, social governance, all of these different environmental social governance strategies, yet it won't even follow the, the, the its own uh, protocols. Um, now, in closing, the WEF was founded over 50 years ago. Uh, so what we're experiencing today represents the amalgamation of power over decades. It's a boiling frog, the slow boiling frog. We're now seeing the bubbles, but uh, you know, bubbling to the surface. Um, and, and the reality is, the World Economic Forum has had very little competition along the way. You know, in a free market environment, you'd expect, you know, some level of competition. But actually, you, you could argue that it's become a monopoly, like many others, like Amazon and Facebook and Google. You know, it's 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 an entity of its own, uh, and it's 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 had very little private comp competition, but it's also had no competition from any organization, let alone governments, you know, any, any non-governmental organization or government. So it's it's had this unwielding power, this unelected, undemocratic power, and now it has this significant influence over our life. Now, I appreciate if you're watching this, you're thinking, what can we do? What can be done? And that that is the overarching question that we should be asking ourselves. What can we do? And I invite you to think, what can you do? What can I do? Because we're often asking, what can we do as a, as a collective? And that's an important question to ask because you know, given the scale of power that it has and influence that it has, we need to think about how we rebalance that power. We also need to think about how we avoid becoming a centralized institution as well. How do we decentralize? These questions are important to ask. But part of the reason why so much power has been amalgamated in such a way is because of the power that the public have almost willingly, consciously or otherwise, given away. You know, so now is the time for each one of us to actually reclaim our personal power, reclaim personal responsibility, reclaim our own agency. And that really is the first step to change. So it's very hard for people to get their heads around when we're talking about the significant scale of power. But the reality is, you know, as I mentioned, it's really six to seven thousand people <laughs> amongst billions. So the, the awakening that unfolds here is, is really the awakening to our own personal power. That really is the first step. And then how we galvanize that on an individual and collective level is an important next conversation. But if we're not willing to reclaim our own personal power and become empowered, because empowerment is a healthy form of power, what we're witnessing and talking about today in the context of the WF is an unhealthy form of an unhealthy manifestation of power. What we're talking about here is a healthy manifestation of power where each individual is able to thrive in harmony with society and the world we live in. That's that's really what we should be pursuing. 
But the goals of the WF are really adverse to individual flourishing. They're adverse to societal flourishing. They're also <laughs> adverse to uh, environmental flourishing. You know, when you strip away all the greenwashing and you see all the hypocrisy, which is, again, the subject of another episode, you can see the emperor has no clothes. So it is important that we ask what can be done. And over the coming weeks, we'll be releasing a lot of content on this. We'll be inviting lots of guests. And I was part of a, an amazing forum today with uh, Abir Balan's new organization, Think Twice. Abir was one of the founding members of Panda alongside Nick Hudson. She's launched a new initiative today. Um, and uh, I was part of a two-hour workshop with the, the, the Think Twice team. Uh, and, you know, there are lots of people now exploring how we move forward. How do we tackle this imbalance in power? But let us not leave it to the organizations. Let's take personal responsibility. Let's, let's seek ways in, us, in our day-to-day -day lives to live today how we wish to see the world tomorrow, which was the subject of my talk that I gave last weekend at the Trailblazing Systemic Change workshop that I had the privilege of being part of in Glastonbury. And the, the irony is, you know, here's the irony. And here's where we also must need to stand guard at the door of what we're doing, because the, the event that we held in Glastonbury was certainly no secretive event. It was published, it was recorded, we released some recordings, but it was still a remote gathering <laughs> of change makers who are just simply seeing the world in a different way. What we need to be doing is opening up the conversation, opening up the dialogue and making this democratic. We need to be, we need to be involving, we need to bring public sovereignty into this equation. This is all about decentralization, not centralization in reverse, because you know, the, the, the temptation when you're going up a great power is to amass power together, but actually distributed power, I believe, is where the secret lies, because that enables us to have some level of centralization and coordination, working in collaboration, of course, but we have that distribution because that enables to, to, to each individual to have a voice, which is ultimately what, what the, the, the crux of this is all about. It's about uh, emboldening and enlivening citizens once again, because we're facing this kind of consumerist uh, culture that keeps us sedated you know the the media keeps us sedated and we've got it we've got it we've got to mo move beyond that and find that way uh, and, and i'm increasingly not not enjoying the term awakening so much but it is an awakening you know awakening becomes a judgmental term you know it, it can be used adversely but ultimately it is that awakening from our own slumber you know it's opening our eyes to the world as as it is and not just opening our eyes to the way that the world is, but opening the eyes, the inner eye, to see the power within oneself to influence the world around ourselves. So the question of what can be done is something we're going to explore over the over the coming weeks, uh, months, and years, undoubtedly, because it's taken 50 years for this thing to, to build its power. I, I'm pretty sure it is also built with the seed of its own demise, but there are things that we can do over the weeks ahead that, that can really start to make a difference. And, and, and it, it, it is changing. The reality is if you zoom out far enough, you look to history, you can see that things like this happen all the time and they do pass. So yeah, this too shall pass. Um, now we can all play our part in accelerating <laughs> uh, the change and we can also start accelerating building something uh, different. You know, I'm not going to say better because, again, if we go into building building something better or superior, you know, we're entering into the mindset of the elites, you know, who think that they have the way. You know, the, the, the way is your way. <laughs> that, is, that is the key. It is, it, is, it is finding a way for each of us to, to play a role in, in shaping the world that we live within together. Um, so next week, uh, when I come back on Monday, I'll be exploring what went on in Davos this week. I've kind of today given you a flavor of how the mechanism works. 
Next week, we're going to recap the conversations that have taken place, at least those that have happened publicly. We, you know, can, we, can, we can see and, and hear what's happened at Davos so we can get an understanding of the overall trajectory. And, you know, the last two years has given us a really clear indication of where that trajectory is heading. You know, you don't need to be a, a rocket scientist to pull it apart. But on Monday, I'll be sharing my evaluation of what, what went on at Davos. So tune in on Monday. Um, and then we're going to start opening up the conversation about what it's going to take to restore the balance of power. So if you're not already part of our community, the Elevate community, I encourage you to go to weareelevate.org. That's weareelevate.org and join our uh, our changemaker community where we're having conversations like this every single day. And uh, on Monday evening, I would like to invite you to join our free event, um, which is the, the debrief of the Trailblazer Systemic Change event that I've just referred to that took place in Glastonbury. Because uh, over the course of two days, we explored all kinds of strategies, processes, and frameworks for creating systemic change. And at the heart of all of that is this rebalancing of power. You know, we had activists and change makers from all over the world all from different causes. You know, this wasn't a freedom movement event. Uh, this was a, an event inviting people from all backgrounds, all viewpoints, all belief systems uh, to explore the kind of commonalities that, that exist amongst all of the challenges that the world is facing. And, and this imbalance of power, uh, this corporate, this corporatist power is at the heart of, of, of everything. And how, how, how do we shift and restore the power and bring the power back to the people is one of the most important conversations that we can have. So over two days, we explored frameworks, concepts, practices for creating systemic change. And on Monday evening, 8 p.m. UK time, we're hosting a Zoom event where we're going to share you know, from the, the participants of, of that event, some of the leaders of that event and the, uh, the participants are going to share their takeaways, their insights, uh, and we'll give you a, a flavor of what the program entailed for those of you uh, who weren't able to attend. Um, if you'd like to get the recordings of the entire event, you can, you can also purchase the recordings for just £60. Um, you've got two days worth of recordings plus uh, the online course that we're building around systemic change. But you'll you'll see more about that in the comments. I'll put the links in. But you can join our free event on Monday night where we'll talk through that uh, particular seminar. So you know, that's that's the starting point for really engaging with how do we create change? You know, the, these types of conversations, the processes and frameworks, building networks, building uh, coalitions, uh, and ultimately helping people to reclaim their personal power is the way we will create change. So look out for the event on Monday night. You can register now for free at weareelevate.org forward slash trailblazer debrief. Uh, you'll also find out more by registering how to purchase the recordings if you wish. Um, but there's so much uh, there's so much to explore and we'll be bringing all of these types of conversations to the Elevate podcast in the coming weeks as we start to figure out how we can each play our part in creating the kind of change we wish to see in the world. So thanks very much for tuning in. If you found this interesting and valuable, please hit the share button. It's nearly 45 minutes of content here tonight. So it's a it's a long stretch. Uh, but it's a, I, I believe that those of us in the world who've been paying attention for the last couple of years are pretty clued up around how this mechanism works. Uh, but it's really important that we start to spread the word. It's really important, you know, we can we can talk about the individual issues, uh, the vaccine stories and et cetera, which, which is really, really important. We must continue to shine a light on those issues. But actually, we've got to sometimes take a step back and look at the broader systemic issues, uh, and many of which we've touched upon today and this, this kind of corporate takeover through the likes of the WF. So please do share this video. Um, it's also available on YouTube, Facebook. You know, it's, it's, it's available in multiple locations, Rumble, Odyssey, uh, whatever platform you prefer to use. Take the video. Please do share it. Help people to understand how the way the world of the, the way of the, 
the world is unfolding is being uh, manipulated. It's important that we have a shared understanding um, of, of how this is unfolding. Now, if you're watching this and you, you think differently to myself or you have a different take on it, put it in the comments. Share any other resources that you have, any other links. This is important that we have a dialogue. It's important we have a conversation. You know, if you, so if you see things differently, you think there's different influences, tell us about it, put it in the comments, share your views. That way we can all become uh, more informed and we can also get into the nuances of all the different perspectives that helps us give us a more whole and holistic understanding of exactly what's happening in the world and how we can influence it. So thanks again for tuning in. Again, if you're not a member of the Elevate community yet, head over to weareelevate.org. Come and join the conversation and I'll see you again on Monday. Thank you so much for tuning in and have a great weekend. Mm -hmm.